So, um, we're following a series um, which happens to coincide with the discussions that the uh, General Synod are having at the end of the Living and Love and Faith uh, process. And the House of Bishops have um, reported to General Synod, they've made some proposals, um, and so we're kind of speaking into that. Um, and so it's quite interesting that the mini-ministries that um, Jude and Charlotte do at the beginning are not particularly related to what we're doing in, in the rest of the service, but um, they just seem to be landing in the same sort of areas, so that's just quite interesting. Now, one of the things about being a preacher is you get to talk about all sorts of subjects where you're not an expert. And today, we're talking about marriage. Now, today is kind of part one of a two-parter, because next week we're going to be talking about relationships and community. Um, so please take the two together, um, particularly if you're not married, and for, for whatever reason. So today we're talking about marriage. Now, Sarah, was my wife, was talking to one of our children recently about relationships, and in the course of that she gesticulated across the table, this is not your model. Um, so <laughs> I don't stand here as, you know, the perfect husband in the perfect marriage, um, but it is incumbent on me to share what I can from what we find in the scriptures. That's right, isn't it, dear? Yes. <laughs> now, many of, will, many of you will know that I was first married at 23 and was divorced due to my ex-wife's adultery um, and my negligence, for which I have subsequently repented, and I was uh, divorced at 28. That would become relevant a little bit later. So I'm going to start with the Bible and some kind of theological heavy lifting, really, looking at those Genesis passages in particular, line by line, but also looking at what Jesus said, and then casting back to see what that, how that fits within what the, current, the church is currently teaching and how that impacts on the general synod discussions. So the Bible, it starts with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. Revelation 19 to 21 portrays the remaking of all things as the lamb who was slain takes his bride. That is the fellowship of all believers. Um, Jesus spoke about the wedding feast in a number of parables, Matthew 22, the wedding banquet, Matthew 25, the wise virgins awaiting the groom. It was interesting that in 8.45 this morning we were singing Love Divine or Love's Excelling and Bob was saying this is a, a classic sort of wedding hymn and it closes with these words, Lost in Wonder, Love and Praise. And that's a picture of this um, cosmic wedding, the wedding of the, the lamb who was slain with his bride. In the Old Testament we find Israel... God's chosen people is portrayed as the bride of Yahweh, the husband. That is why the prophets present their idolatry and their chasing after other gods and the ways of the nations that surrounded them as adultery and prostituting themselves. Ezekiel 6, 16, 23, Hosea 1 and 2, to name but a few. But the ultimate marriage is God and his people. And we are all invited to be part of that. 
That means that there will be no human marriage in the new creation. In Matthew 22:30, Jesus says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the church, will be the perfect marriage. So the first thing to say is that we are not perfected in marriage, despite what Disney and Hollywood might tell us. If we seek the perfect partner or even see being married as the goal of marriage, we have missed the point. It's an honourable estate, as it says in the Book of Common Prayer, but it's also at best the trailer to the main picture, in the words of Ed Shaw. It falls short of the ultimate marriage, God and his people which is the perfection to come. It is good, but it's not perfect. So any marriage before that final marriage points to, but is less than that perfect union. But how do we know what a marriage looks like? What is its purpose? For that, we go back to the beginning of the Bible. And here's another book recommendation. Um, John Mark Comer's Loveology, which is a completely made-up word, by the way, um, is, is an excellent, very, very accessible, very readable, but very theological approach to this whole idea of marriage, sex, relationships. Um, and his exploration hangs on several beautiful Hebrew words. Now, we have two creation accounts in the first two chapters of Genesis. One is a more sweeping across all of creation, and the other drills down into the nuts and bolts of the creation of, well, us, of humanity. So starting with Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So first off, all three Trinitarian persons are involved. Let us make. So that the sociable community known as the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit works in relationship to create. John 1 tells us that the word, who we then later in the book find out is Jesus, was there at the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. So if we have this picture of the Father as the creator and the Son and the Holy Spirit being other people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in all things of God, and that includes creation. So there is the image of God imprinted on or more like infused into that part of creation which we call human. But we are not God. We are part, we are creatures. We're part of creation. But we are image bearers in a way that the rest of creation is not. And that has a purpose. It goes on. So that they may rule over the fish, the sea, the birds of the sky, etc., etc., so our purpose is to rule and to steward creation. We are given to work and oversee that which God has made. And if God's purpose for creation is good, so should ours be. And then comes a little Trinitarian um, poem. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Three creation aspects, own image, image of God, and this third new idea, male and female. Genesis 1, therefore, tells us of a binary, 
both in that same language, the image of God, male and female. And the next verse, verse 28, is God blessed them. Because his creation is very good, when we see in Genesis 1, the, six, the, the first five days of creation, God says at the end of that day it was good. At the end of the sixth day, he said it was very good. Because at that point, he had made humanity to steward all the rest. The first thing God does is to bless them. And he blesses both of them, male and female, and gives the first command to them, And that first command, rather wonderfully, is be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Be fruitful, increase, fill, subdue, rule. See to follow my purposes, says God, as my image in creation, for I am outside of creation, I am the creator, and see that it is good. And so the first version of the story ends. Two people tasked with multiplying, commissioned to look after creation, blessed. One man and one woman, but we get ahead of ourselves because there's more to come. Just as there are four Gospels taking a slightly different emphasis and view of Jesus' time on earth, there are two creation narratives. The second takes a deep dive into the creation of humanity and not so much on how the rest of it was made. So firstly, before our reading, we are told that Adam is given life. In verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the dust of the ground is the Hebrew word Adama. So Adam comes from Adama and is brought to life by the Ruach, the breath of life. The same word we use in Hebrew for the uh, Holy Spirit. So this is why we are mind, body, and spirit, all interconnected and intertwined. This is why humanity is given the purpose of stewarding creation and is in God's image. The unique Ruach, or life-living Spirit of God, entered Adam to make Adama, the dust, into humanity. So we are connected to creation and we have the breath of life in us. But why does God create in this way? Well, the reading that we had from Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The man, Adam, from the earth, is given the job as a gardener. He is to take care of it. It is his calling and his purpose. And he is, at this point in the story, alone in the task. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So God's command is firstly, freedom. Eat from any tree. And secondly, a boundary. You must not eat from that one tree. For to do so will lead to your death, the end of the life that I have put in you. So paradise is freedom with boundaries. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The next stage, so we've done create, breathe life, commission, specify boundaries, now expand the team. 
Image bearers are part of a loving community. This is the first thing that is not good. For Adam, the man taken from creation, is to be alone. He needs a helper. And the Hebrew word here is ezer. Now that's not a hired hand or a subordinate, but a partner. As we are co-heirs with Christ, so Adam was to be with his ezer, a partner. Verse 19 onwards, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds, etc., etc. Not even man's best friend was enough to fit the bill. I wasn't sure if I'd get away with that one. You know what's coming. Anyway, um, Adam, in his role as steward, names all of the livestock, but none are his ezer. There is more to this image-bearing to come. So in verse 20, But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. We have all that stuff about the rib. The helper, his ezer, comes from within him. Is part of him. Just as Adam comes from the ground, Adam from Adama, so the Isha, the woman, that is his ezer, his helper, his partner, comes from the Ish, the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Having named all of the animals of creation, Adam now names his helper, woman, or Isha. They are partners, and they are meant to be in that partnership. Bones, flesh as one. The Hebrew word for one in one flesh is echad, and it means a fusion at the deepest level. God is echad in the Shema, which we find in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord is one. The Lord is echad. So in verse 24, it goes on, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, echad flesh. It is because of this close connection that man and woman become united as something new. He becomes a husband and she becomes a wife. A marriage is created. They are united and become one flesh. And it is by this one flesh union that they will multiply and their connection will be evident. But not only there, for they will partner and support and work together as partners and supporters. And in verse 25, we're told that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now Jude was talking about shame earlier, where it's something that we don't want to, we've got in that box and we don't want to share with anybody else. They don't have any shame. Their nakedness is a sign of the ordained nature of this union and their lack of shame is that this is the way it was meant to be. Now, some would argue that this one flesh union is more of a kinship and that it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to family bonds. Therefore, the marriage described here is not exclusively one man and one woman, but if that were the case, then it would not necessarily be exclusively two people either, but could instead be more than that. The plain reading makes more sense that this is God's plan. This narrative also suggests that the place for sex is within that one flesh union. 
between one man and one woman uh, who were married for life. Now, the Book of Common Press summarizes the purpose of marriage as three things ordained in this wonderful old language for the procreation of children, for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, and for mutual society, help, and comfort. The gift of sex, which is a good gift, therefore, is very much placed within marriage and marriage between one man and one woman for life. Sex outside marriage, therefore, between any combination of people, is seen as outside of what God ordains, outside of God's plan. Therefore, there are no direct indications from Scripture that either same-sex marriage nor same-sex sexual activity is seen positively. Neither Hollywood nor statistics of sexual behaviour in the modern world would suggest that the world agrees. Some would argue, as Chris Bryant, the Labour MP, did in Parliament just last week, that Jesus never spoke on sex nor marriage. That turns us towards our third reading today. For in Matthew 19, we have this exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus. And the Pharisees are, as they often do, trying to catch Jesus out. Some Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The context is that the religious authorities are trying to catch him out. And this time with a question about divorce. Jesus does not talk directly divorce. Instead, he describes the nature of a God-ordained marriage. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 that we just unpacked And he specifies that humans are sexed as male and female, that a man and a woman become a one-flesh union, and that they should not be separated by anyone else. The question asked was, is it lawful, that is in the law of Moses, to divorce for whatever reason a man chooses, any and every reason? Examples given were burning the toast. Seriously. Now, given that this whole picture is of a man and a woman being made as partners together and the mutual respect that goes with that, it's apparent that the men at the time were asking um, from a position of thinking that the women were, in effect, just property. So any and any reason, Jesus says marriage is for life, not for anyone else to meddle in, and as we shall see, or to have sex with either partners. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Pharisees think Jesus does not know what he's talking about in the Mosaic law, and they challenge him with Moses' supposed command that men send away their wives. Notice that this means that the man is separating. There's nobody else involved. So, if a, um, if a Jewish man at the time were to write a certificate of divorce and give it to his wife and send her away for burning the toast, it's not adultery, is it? Yeah. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus' language is important here. Moses permitted, but he didn't command. That's their own wishful thinking. The provision is only a recognition of the reality of men's hearts. Permission does not make it the ideal. And thirdly, he outlaws any divorce other than where adultery is the reason, breaking the seventh commandment. That means that divorces for any and every reason are invalid. The man is still married and breaks the seven commandments themselves if they marry somebody else. Now, the word for sexual immorality, this is the last um, ancient language word we'll be looking at, is pornea, from which we get pornography. It's a catch-all term that means any sex outside marriage, outside of the ordained place, one man and one woman, who are one flesh. It is amongst the things that come out of the heart, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19. It is a sign of the unrepentant in the woes in Revelation 9 and those who will not enter the kingdom in Revelation 22, 15. Jesus clearly had a high view of the gift of sex and what we do with our bodies. Jesus also has a clear view of marriage as that which was ordained from the beginning one man and one woman in a one-flesh union for life. So how does this all sit within the House of Bishops' proposals to General Synod? Well, as a reminder, uh, some we shared last week and has um, been noted in the blogs uh, that uh, appear in the news link. Holy matrimony is affirmed by the bishops as being between one man and one woman. And that's if you like, uh, the Christian understanding of a marriage. Prayers of blessing are being offered for couples in same-sex relationships, for example, at uh, a civil partnership or after a civil wedding. A distinction is clearly made in the House of Bishops' paper between a civil marriage and holy matrimony, which, legal implications aside, allows the affirming priest to say that since their marriage is not recognised by the church, a blessing can be offered. Now, this week's blog highlights that those who don't want any change are not happy about the prayers being offered, and those who want more change are not happy about the prayers being offered and the basis upon which they are offered. Um, there's, it, there's not a surprise that there is something on Amazon called um, Church of England fudge being sold. Um, now, the blessing is for the couple, each individual, not on their relationship, because that would go against the first affirmation, which is what holy matrimony is. And the blessing is for the couple. In other words, we're asking God if he will bless, not of the relationship. It's not a priestly proclamation of God's blessing. And the reason that, uh, the reason that is is because this partnership is not seen as holy matrimony. Now, 14 evangelical bishops issued a separate theological paper this week on the meaning of marriage. And in it, they identify the goodness of creation in marriage, interdependence of humanity, the depiction of the salvation story in marriage, difference, it's lifelong and it's about intimacy, and that life is generated within marriage. And most especially, 
that, this, that a marriage is more than a contract. We see all of this, including the origination in the Genesis story, in the preface to the marriage service. In the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have come together to witness the marriage of A and B, to pray for God's blessing on them, to share their joy, and to celebrate their love. Marriage is a gift of God in creation. You can hear the Genesis coming through there. Through which husband and wife may know the grace of God. It is given that as man and woman grow together in love and trust, they shall be united with one another in heart, body, and mind. As Christ is united with his bride, the church. So you can see the wedding at the end of the Bible as well as the wedding at the beginning of the Bible. The gift of marriage brings husband and wife together in the delight and tenderness of sexual union. It's that point in a, in a wedding service where I'm just waiting for the tittering to start, but it never does, joyfully. And the joyful commitment to the end of their lives. It is given as the foundation of family life in which children are nurtured and in which each member of the family, in good times and in bad, if you remember those vows include in sickness and in health, may find strength, companionship and comfort and grow to maturity in love. Marriage is a way of life made holy by God and blessed by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with those celebrating a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, that Isa, the Isha and the Ish, which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly and selfishly, but reverently and responsibly. At this point, I stare each of the couple right in the face because they're about to make declarations. A and B are now to enter this way of life. They will each give their consent to the other, make solemn vows, and in token of this, they will each give and receive a ring. We pray with them that Holy Spirit will guide and strengthen them, that they may fulfill God's purposes for the whole of their earthly life together, that the Spirit will guide and strengthen them and give them that strength that they need in that lifelong marriage. It's a lot to take on, but it's important, a lot of the discussion around these issues is not about what Scripture actually says. So it's important to get down and look at those Scriptures themselves and what they indicate. But what might it mean for us? Well, firstly, to continue to uphold that definition of holy matrimony between one man and one woman for life. Secondly, it points up that we should be very intentional, not just the clergy who are marrying, but the whole church family, being very intentional about what it means um, to prepare somebody for making that commitment to one person for life. I always say it's not about the day. It's about all the days that are going to come later. Because you're going to say vows about um, the good times and the bad. We need to review how consistent we are about our attitude to sex as a gift given to be enjoyed within marriage alone. More on this next week. So I said it's a two-parter. And then finally, we need to repent of past 
or current sexual immorality. And ways in which we may have made assumptions about others and perhaps not guided people well about God's intent for their lives, including their sex lives. So I'd like to close with a prayer. And it is the collect. Um, If you're not very Anglican, the collect is the prayer for the day, which is said by um, churches all around the world. And this is the collect for the third Sunday before Lent. Almighty God, who alone can bring order to the unruly wills and passions of sinful humanity, give your people grace so to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may surely be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.